Today we do continue our sermon series. This is uh, week four of our Psalm 22 series as we're looking through King David's account of sorrow and suffering. He's, he's working through this deep sorrow and suffering. He's working through what it means in his life and, and where does he go to find hope. And so we've been kind of trudging through the early stages, which have to do with loneliness and hopelessness and just sort of like a general sense of pain. And today we move into uh, what we're calling agency, which agency is uh, generally just what can you do about it? Uh, what can you do? So if you have a, a real estate agent or you're a professional, you have an agent that they work on your behalf, they're representing you and they help do things on your behalf. The same is true uh, when we have our own agency, when we possess moral agency or, or physical agency, we are doing things on our behalf. And so today what we're talking about is what can I do about it? Yes, I can be lonely. Yes, I can be sorrowful. Yes, I could be suffering. But what is there left for me to do? And so uh, before we launch into the scripture and what we do about it, I want to make a special note that next week we have an opportunity for you to do something about it practically. Um, part of this journey for us as a church is not only learning in and ourselves, like, what is this all about and how do I deal with this in my life? But uh, Dr. Carissa Watt, who's a clinical psychologist, in uh, next Sunday night at 7 p.m. is going to be delivering uh, really expert advice on what does it mean to walk alongside the grieving? What does it mean to walk alongside those in our lives that may be struggling? And what I promise you is if you don't know someone who is struggling, um, you will A, through this lens, begin to see someone who might be, and B, you will learn whole new ways to walk through your own struggles in the future. And so that's up there for you. That is for everybody. We are having childcare here, so there can be no hurdle. We want there to be no hurdle uh, for you coming, spending about an hour. We recognize it's a school night. And so spend about an hour here. We'll have a question and answer as well. And we'll have an anonymous way you can turn in questions. And so if you go, gosh, I have some questions about how this works or what I should do or what should you say, you can write those down and we'll actually get those answered by a professional, have some other resources available. So we want to make a really practical end. So when we're done with this sermon series, we don't go, now you know. We go, now here's a way to start practicing what this means in our lives. And so that's there for you. I want to make sure that's uh, very, very clear. I would encourage you to be here. I will be here. I cannot wait. On we go. So today we're talking about agency. And so um, the question we're really asking is, what does it mean, though? What, what can we do? What can you do? What can I do when we're in sorrow and we're in suffering, when we're in trial and we're in grief? Then what? And I would argue that uh, in the midst of deep sorrow and suffering, what we're really talking about when we're talking about what can we do, we're actually talking about the cultivation and the maintenance of hope. The thing that the sufferer can do among all the things we can't do, all the places that circumstances have us and situations are out of our control and we can't get our hands on the thing that is causing us pain, the one thing we can do is cultivate and maintain hope. Hope is like a, a campfire. So if you set a great campfire, it's only a matter of time before it begins uh, to dissipate, before it begins to uh, die out and the embers die out and the logs are no longer logs and now they're ashes and your campfire goes away. And hope is much the same. That it's something that requires our constant attention, our constant maintenance, and our constant cultivation to keep it going. And what happens is in our seasons of great sorrow, it begins to fade. And then the fuel for hope is burned alongside of it. And so that additional diagnosis or that one more bit of bad news or that one more estranged relationship or that one more day of silence, whatever that is, begins to continue to erode our ability to see that there's any hope in the situation at all. And what the fire requires, what our hope requires, is constant renewal. So, what we're going to talk about today is the way that our past gives light to our present. The way that the past gives light to the present. We're also going to talk about the way that a promised future lights the path ahead. And so how does the promised future light our path as we go? 
And then finally, we're going to talk about a hope beyond imagination. We're going to start, though, in Psalm 22, where we've been all this month. We're going to put it on the screen so you can read along with us. And we'll be in Psalm 22, starting in verse 22. King David writes this. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. And the poor will eat and be satisfied. And those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. David makes this pivot in this section of the text, in this section of the psalm. There's this pivot from the loneliness and the sorrow and the suffering and the hopelessness and the pain. And all of a sudden, he he starts to talk about two things. First, he uses this forward-looking language, I will declare, they will praise you. This will, future tense, shows up. With that, it's actually rooted in verse 24 where he says, For he has not despised. And so the future tense of the will is actually rooted in the past tense of for he has not. So looking backwards, David goes, why do we have hope? Well, because when we look backwards, he didn't scorn or, de- uh, or despise those who were in need. He, he did the good thing then, and so we can look forward and say, maybe he's going to do it for us too. David gives us a call to remembrance, to tap into our memory to find hope, which is counterintuitive because memory is often the place we go to find greater despondency. Memory is often the place we go to find greater despondency because if you're in a trial, memory is where you remember how you got there. If it was a series of bad decisions or it's a series of bad choices or it's a circumstance you maybe could have avoided had you just turned left instead of right that day, I never would have gotten here. So memory has a way of of reminding us of the way we got into trial. It also, memory and, and your mind, when you come into your mind's eye, there's two different paths there that are also unhealthy. And one is you reminisce about the way things used to be before this came upon me. Or you fantasize about what could be if I weren't stuck here. And so we reminisce and we fantasize and then we kind of walk through the, how did I get here in the first place? And in all those places, we're just sitting in our memory. And yet that's what David says we're to do. If we root ourselves in the past, there may be hope for the future. The book of Lamentations in the Bible says this, the thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. So he's looking backwards. The writer is looking backwards and says, the thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. That's what it feels like to look backwards. I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Verse 21, yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. So the heartbreak we're seeing as he begins this passage, the heartbreak is unforgettable. The wound never really leaves him. Anybody who's walked through deep sorrow and suffering knows this. When we look backwards, we can re-experience the pain afresh. And yet he says, in our remembrance, there is a hope. He says, when I remember this, and then we continue in verse 22. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. His great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. And I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. So looking backwards, it's great pain and there's great grief. And gosh, when I think of my homelessness and my affliction, how terrible was that? And yet I find hope not in looking in, in, at my situation. I find hope in looking backwards, seeing that God has always been there. That his mercies are fresh every morning. And notice he says, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. He's not rooting his hope in himself. 
In the great, in the book of Lamentations where we lament, this is the place where sorrow lives in your Bible. The hope is not found in fixing the problem we have. The hope is found in fixing our eyes on Jesus. And it's a whole other thing because we look for fix after fix after fix and it isn't there. So the writer says, not only do I recall heartache, but in recalling I find hope. That God is faithful and he's rich in mercy and he's abounding in love and maybe that stirs something inside of us. Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, there's no need for God to create a new thing upon the earth in order to restore believers to joy. If they would prayerfully just rake the ashes of the past, they would find light for the present. Think about this. He says, there's no need for God to make something new to bring you joy in your future. You're in sorrow, you're in suffering, and you go, gosh, if if we just get a new thing, God, if you would just give me a new joy or a fresh joy or a fresh breath, maybe I could make it through to tomorrow. And Spurgeon says, it isn't that. It doesn't require anything new to restore us to joy. What actually it requires is for us to prayerfully rake the ashes of the past back together. And in doing so, we will find light for the present. What does he mean by this? When you have that campfire that's going out and you begin to pull the bits together, you pull the ember here and you pull the bit there and that little hint of a flame and you start putting those things together and you give it a little blow, what happens? Fresh fire. Fresh fire to which you might add the fuel of hope on again. But the way that we rekindle the fire in our souls, the way that we find the hope again is by going backwards and finding those bits of grace and finding those bits of mercy and finding those bits of goodness and bringing them back and then giving them a little gentle blow until that fire rekindles. Pull together the embers of the past promises kept. Rake together the smoldering bits of hope before they go out. In a sense, going backwards, we then pull forward the ancient flame that was already lit within us. What past graces do you look beyond as you sit in hurts? Better way to say this is, what hurts do you have that you can only see because you're willing to look past the grace that's been given? What things do we avoid looking at the positive side because the negative side is just where we only place we know to sit these days? I remember my sister, uh, who died at the age of 25, when she was 11, she got diagnosed with sort of a mysterious illness that all we knew was she needed new lungs. At 12, it was decided she needed them desperately, and so they said, we're not waiting for anybody. We need a living donor. And so we told the story a hundred times. We go through the process, a few of us, my father and I end up uh, qualifying, and we, we give her lungs. But I remember in her critical state, she was on her deathbed, I made a vow to God, and what I thought I was doing is making a promise with God, but that but was just me. And I said, Lord, I am 19. I was 19, and she was 12, and I was giving up my lung, and I said, I don't know, this doesn't feel all that safe, and it feels a little bit scary, and it's a little bit dangerous, but if you'll just give her until 19, I'll do this for you. What I wanted was for her to at least get to my age, because I thought, it's not really fair that I got to live till 19, and she wouldn't. So if she can just get here, I don't care what happens to me. Just get her to 19. It was hard to swallow that her life was cut short at 25, and yet she had made it to 19. She, she did the thing that I asked God to do for her. And the reality was the program that she was in, at Children's Hospital of St. Louis, they were doing living donor transplants for children. And the program that she was in, the next three children that went through, all died within the hospital after surgery. So much so that they had to shut down the entire program to rethink the medical ethics of the program itself. And yet she lived. Not just to 19, but to 25. 
And so I had to have this moment in, in, in her loss where there was part of me that was, was embittered by this and part of me that was asking the same questions we all ask, which is, why? How is this just? That there was an unearned punishment in a life of suffering. How is this okay? And yet on the other hand, I knew that we had been incredibly graced with something we didn't earn. And so my prayer began, Lord, let me be thankful for the years that you gave her. Let me be grateful that you kept a promise that I made on your behalf, which is the thing only God can do. Let me be thankful for all of the little things she got to experience as a result of her life being elongated just a bit more. And so the 12-year-old that thought for sure she was dying got to have a first kiss. Got to tailgate at college football games. Got to come to faith in Jesus. Lord, let me not be embittered that you gave her life that she might live that life. Because as I looked at it and I considered in her memorial service in a packed out room with a thousand people, the lives she touched, the friendships she kept, it occurred to me what a wild insult it was to look at God and blame him for allowing her to die without crediting him for allowing her to live. That there was a true life that she'd been given and a zeal with which she lived. There was a faith that she carried to attend her baptism. These things were these incredible graces on the journey with her. And to simply carry bitterness is to ignore all of the good things that God provided. And so in that moment, what we were required to do is rake together the ashes of his goodness and grace. Rake together the ashes of good memory and of grace and of things unearned and bring them back together and blow on them for a bit and see the fire of hope is still here. And though she is lost, she lived. This is hard truth for us. Church, we are promised nothing. Scripture even says that what we earn with our life, what we earn with our days is death. And yet we shake our fists at the sky and we say, how could you do this to me? How could you cut that short? How could you ruin this thing? How could you allow this to fall apart? Writer of Lamentations says, great is my inheritance, great is his faithfulness, great are his mercies for me. All of those things are not in us, they are from him. And so as we shake our fists at the sky, we have to recognize on the other end that everything good in our life comes from God as well. And so we rake together the ashes to find just enough to kindle a new flame of hope from the ancient fire of God's goodness that preceded us and will outlive us. So that's how the past can inform our present. Now the promised future lights a path ahead. The future then lights the path that we're on today. Ten times in the final ten verses of Psalm 22, David uses the term will. This future tense verb, I will, we will, This will happen. This will. It's a pivot to the future. After all this pain, now we can talk about the future and it's going to be okay. And where they are, this future is actually rooted in the past promises that God has kept. So David keeps making these confident statements about the future because he's rooting them in a promise-keeping God and in a securing God and in a rescuing God. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 in the New Testament, writer to the church at Thessalonica says this, And now, dear brothers and sisters, We want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. And this is this letter talking about the future and this hope that we're supposed to be cultivating. And this is the part that is so poignant. 
We want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. People who don't know the future is secured can grieve in the current day because what do they know better? But you and I as believers, we know the end of the story. We can read the last page of the novel. We know what's coming. When victory is assured and salvation is enshrined and you and I have an eternity secured, then you and I can look at the end of the story and go, this is going to be okay. And in that, we then cultivate hope, not as those who have no hope, not as those who don't have the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us and remind us of who we are. We do not grieve that way. We grieve as people who know that there is a better day coming, even when this is the day I wish would go away. Hope for the present is based in the past, and hope in the future lights the path ahead. We have a hope in a God who has saved us, past tense, and a God who is saving us, present tense, and a God who will save us, future tense, and a God who has redeemed, is redeeming, will redeem. It is past, it is present, it is future, it is total. It all sounds nice, but in the midst of sorrow and suffering, the honest question right now would be, yeah, that's all great and all that, but how does that help me today? That's a nice sentiment, but I don't feel better. And I would say, if you can find hope, if you can scrape together these ashes and these embers and you can breathe back the fire of hope, hope becomes something greater. Hope is a light. It's a light on a well-worn path. Hope becomes a reminder that this way has been walked before and that it leads to a greater good. Because what's new to us is not new on this planet. What's new to us is not a surprise to God. When I was a missionary in South Africa, my first year there, the guy came into our office at one point and he says, hey, you're going on a mission trip with us. And I said, well, that's funny. Joke's on you because I'm on a mission trip and I'm already here. So what do you got? He was like, no, uh, you're going further. And I was like, 10,000 miles feels like it's far enough. And he goes, a little further. You're coming with us. We already talked to the pastor. Already got it covered. It's already paid for. You got nothing to do but show up. So you're coming. And I was like, okay. So we go from Johannesburg, a city of 10 million where I'm very comfortable, into the bush into the wilds of Africa, into the Africa you have seen on your nature documentary, into the rolling grass, yellow and green grass hills with the occasional acacia tree, that umbrella on the savanna, in the worn dirt paths and the thatched roof houses with mud walls. This is the Africa we were going into. This is the Africa I was invited into. This is the Africa I purposely chose not to go to when I decided to live in a city. And here we go. We get into this, uh, one day we get into the the little minibus that was taking us from place to place, and the guy driving the minibus says, today we're having a revival. I said, okay, a revival. I don't know what that is. He says, basically, we want to get the town into a central place, and we're just going to preach. And I said, okay, what do I do? And he goes, well, you're going to be one of the inviters. And I said, I don't know what that means either. And he goes, well, we're going to drop you off, and then you're going to invite everybody you meet on this path, and then when you get to the end of the path, you'll find the school. And that's where we're going to do this thing. And I was like, why at the school? And he goes, because it's the only building with a concrete floor. So we're going to go there. And it's a few miles, maybe more. We're not really sure. But what the local told us is if we drop you off here at this path, and now I look out the window and I realize we had stopped and he's pointing at a path. If we drop you off at that path and you just follow that path, eventually you'll hit the school. And I was like, what does eventually mean? It's like 9 a.m. And he's like, well, eventually. I said, well, what time is the revival? And he goes, well, um, time, you know. Okay, can you give me an estimate? He goes, well, after dark. 9 a.m., after dark. And you can't give me a time? And then he laughs, a big, hearty South African laugh, and he goes, you Americans. (laughs) You have all the watches. We have the time out. And I was like, oh, here we go. 
So the door slides open out onto the path we go. Me and this uh, bullish-looking white South African man named Graham. He had a big mustache, and he looked like a, a water buffalo just walking along the path. And it's me and him, and on we go. And we start walking this red dirt path. And it's one of those paths that you can see when you're on it, but if you get five feet off of it, you'll never find it again because it's the grass is swaying back and forth, and the lions are mauling people left and right. That's what I'm thinking. And you know when you hold up a vinyl record, if you hold it like here... Vinyl records, these are, never mind. Okay, so if you're over 40, if you hold up a vinyl record or under 25 because it's cool again, it's just a piece of black vinyl. It's just like plastic, and you can kind of see it's a circle and it's black. But when you get close enough to it, you notice that there's grooves in it. And then if you get even closer, you can see that the grooves are really specified because that's what makes the sound as the needle passes over. And this is what this path was like, is if you got more than five feet from it, you don't even know what's there. But once you're on it, you're like, hey, man, this thing is good. It's got grooves in it, and it's been walked before. And so we walk. And from one spot to the next, from one random villager to the next, and we walk, and we walk, and we walk, and eventually we stop, and we rest, and we eat. I had two mangoes and a bottle of water for the day. That didn't go very far, but we did it. We kept walking. It started getting dark. Dusk falls. I'm pretty sure that that's when lions start hunting. I've seen a couple nature documentaries. This is not the kind of place where you make the lions joke, because the people in the village would tell you that my brother got killed by a lion, and you're like, "Uh uh-oh. Okay. I'm terrified of snakes. Now I'm terrified of lions. I'm walking with a water buffalo. I don't know what to do. And it's dark. Darker and darker it gets. And I start going, man, I don't know if there's actually a school on this path. I don't know where this path even goes. Did we miss a turn? He goes, no, there's no turn. It's a path. It's like you just keep walking. And I really felt a low-level anxiety creeping in. The moon was high, and it was early for the moon to be out, but it was high, and it was early, and it was bright. And it kind of illuminated this path, and this red clay dirt almost glowed under the swaying dusk of the grasses. We just kept walking. And what happened is my anxiety began to be taken over by this confidence in history. Well, they told us that this path will lead to the school, but more than that, the fact that there's a path here tells us it has to lead somewhere. And even though I've never walked this path before, I'm sure that if I just keep walking, I'm going to hit something at some point. Even if it's just someone's house that I can stay in for the night so we don't get eaten out here, but this could be okay. And so all of a sudden what I recognize is my, pe- my present and my anxiety in the present and my hopelessness in the present was just because I hadn't considered the past. That foot after foot after foot had fallen on this red dirt path and eventually it had been worn smooth. And so the fact that it had been worn smooth told me that there was somewhere it was going. This was the way. So even when we couldn't see more than a few steps ahead, we knew that someone had been on that path before. We knew that there was a destination. The past promised me that it wasn't a dead end. And the future was illuminated by a light from the heavens, placed by God from the beginning of time. And it wasn't lost on me in the moment that my confidence to take another step was based on the fact that someone in the past had taken a step. And my confidence to see where that step was going was based on a future that was enshrined by God at the beginning of time by putting the moon in the sky. And I thought in this moment, all of time is kind of crashing together, and what it's trying to tell me is to stop worrying and take the next step. In sorrow and suffering, we all walk in the shadows of darkness. Eventually, we got to a mud-walled school And about 75 of the people we had seen that day were already there, and they didn't pass us on the path, so I don't know how they got there. But they beat us to the thing. And the guy greets us at the same van that he dropped us off with, and he goes, see, wasn't that 
fun. That wasn't so bad. And I said, if you ever do that again. What we recognize is that in sorrow and suffering, we all walk in the shadow of darkness. We all walk on an unfamiliar path. It wouldn't be painful if you'd done it before. It wouldn't be painful if you knew where it was going. There wouldn't be anxiety if you already knew the outcome. The past reminds you that it's not a new direction, even if it's new for you. One of the silly things people would ask us when we told them we were moving from South Texas to Northwest Ohio was, how will you handle the winter? We'd be like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, it snows a lot. How will you survive? (laughs) To which we said, I don't want to do a geography lesson, but tens of millions of people live above this latitude and they seem to have figured it out. And they would scratch their chins and go, that is super interesting. People live up there. And they're picturing Arctic people in like fox pelts and I don't know what they think we all look like. And, And yet I said, my confidence in moving to a place I'd never been before Think about this. My confidence in moving to a place I'd never been before was you. Because you've walked the path before me. And so when I don't know what a snowblower even is, you showed me the way on the path. When I don't know whether today is the day that you're supposed to scrape the ice off the driveway, if you're supposed to let the snow sit another day, or if it's going to melt, or what do I do? I would text people and say, what do I do? And they'd say, it's only two inches. You need to go back inside your house. And I'd go, oh, I didn't know. My confidence to live in a place I'd never been before and walk a path I'd never walked before was the fact that you walked it first. My hope was in you. My hope was not in something I could figure out. My hope was in the fact that in the past, you'd already done it. And there has to be something there for us because the future is a promise that the way is good and the destination is worth the journey. When we consider this in a biblical context, the future that God promises, the future that is in your scripture, the future that when you turn to the last page, it says there will be no more sorrow, no suffering, no shame, no pain. The future there is a promise that the way is good and the destination is worth the journey. And so even wherever you are on the path, if you go, I don't like it here, the promise should light the way and say it's worth putting one foot in front of another. It's worth claiming victory in the little acts of faith along the way. When people come to my office and they go, what do I do? I'm stuck in this place. I'm stuck in this rut. I'm stuck in this marriage. I'm stuck in the, what do I do? I'm stuck in sorrow and suffering. What do I do? I put them back on the path. That's all I know how to do. I say, well, start tomorrow and wake up and then shower and eat and dare to hope again. Ask God to bring a little bit of hope back. Rake the ashes and then the next day, wake up and shower, and eat, and dare to hope again. And the next day, wake up, and shower, and eat. Make the next right choice. Take the next right step. Find the path, and follow. And even though we don't know where it goes, because I've never been on that path either, what we do know to be true is that the path ends in a good spot. So take the next step. Read of his promises. Pray for his relief. Remember that Jesus precedes us on the path. Jesus, whose death brought darkness upon the earth, which is one of the most beautiful, poetic, and yet literal things about the life of Christ, is when he dies, the light from the earth literally vanishes, and we are plunged into darkness. And yet the light was so powerful that the grave could not hold him, and so he rises anyway. When sorrow and suffering push us to paralysis, we pray for enough strength to lean into the light. To say that while we feel that we are enshrined in darkness, and we are totally enveloped in the darkness We know that we have a Savior and a God who cannot be contained by it. 
that light will again pierce the day. And when that feels too much, when hope feels too far away, we remember this, that we serve a God who in our moment of need didn't simply lean into us, didn't nod at us, didn't pat us on the shoulder, came down from heaven to be among us and to live for us, to die on our behalf and to rise that we might know new life. And rake that together with evidence of his goodness and go, God, let that be hope for tomorrow. A life of hope beyond our imagination starts with a life of healing beyond our worst hurts that Jesus offers every day. The shame and the pain and the sorrow, it's already gone. A life where the fire of hope now lives in us in the Holy Spirit and a life where the promise of tomorrow is to live every day in the presence of a good and a gracious and perfect creator. That's what's on offer. That's where we start with the cultivation of hope. So may that be the fuel that keeps the fire of hope alive in you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your promises. And Lord, I would confess that uh, often in trial, I'm quick to see the, uh, the ways I feel let down and it takes me forever to recognize the way that you have held me up. Lord, as we walk the path together as a community, as we individually and then collectively walk this path, Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength and the faith to walk it, to walk it well. Lord, that you would illuminate our steps in front of us, that you would give us a hope for a new day. God, when we can't see the outcome of something that we are struggling in, and Lord, every single one of us is struggling with something. Father, I pray that the beauty of the past the evidence of your goodness and your grace, that those things would fuel our hope and that the light of the future that you've promised would give us just enough that we might take one more step, that we might do one more day, asking for your presence, asking for your relief, ultimately, Father, asking for your total healing. God, you overwhelm us with the way that you rescue. I pray that we would rest in that today. In Jesus' name. Amen.